0: From the beginning of this letter, Paul has been telling us that God created us to experience the fullness of all of his blessing. We were created so that God could give us all that he has dreamed for us and desires for us. So much more than any of us could ever dream or desire for ourselves. And Paul keeps repeating this, that God's plans for us are more awesome than any of us could ever imagine. But he also tells us through this letter that the primary means for us experiencing what God wants to do in us is as God works in our lives through people, through relationships, through the church, through people that he brings into our lives that challenge us, people who encourage us, People who cause us to realize how far we still have to go and how much of God we need. As we come to this section of the scriptures, Paul says, these people I'm talking about are not just some nebulous group that you might run into every so often but the people who i'm going to use in your life and the, and the ways in which i'm going to challenge you to let me work in you and to fill you with all the blessings that i want to give you are the people who are closest to you because god is concerned about everyday life we often think that being a christian is about is some nebulous thing that happens Somewhere out there and it's hard to get our hands on. But God continues to tell us over and over again. We saw this in the passage from the Old Testament we read in Leviticus. God is concerned about how we live moment by moment, day by day, in the common everyday things of life. And the relationships that God wants to infuse with his grace and to use to work in us are the relationships that are most common to us in our homes, in the places where we work, in the places where we live, those closest relationships that are with us always. Now, we might wish that Paul would say, all right, here's a checklist of things that you do to make these relationships right. But he doesn't instead he says i want to challenge you to live in such a way that is completely countercultural to the norms and the ideals and the roles that are defined by society about these closest relationships and the focal point of what paul wants to tell us is found in verse 21 of chapter 5 where he says submit to one another be subject to each other put others first place yourself under each other's authority. And the rest of the section is Paul's attempt to help us understand what this this command in verse 21 means for those closest relationships. On the one hand, he says, people who are culturally vulnerable willingly submit to the people who have cultural power. Now, in the the time in which Paul lives, women, children, and slaves have very little, if any, power. They have very few rights. They are basically viewed as important only for what they can do for a person. And so one of the great struggles of life for women, children, and slaves is freedom. They're fighting for their freedom. And there are many stories of, of women, children, and slaves doing whatever they need to do, sometimes even violently, to get their freedom. And now they come into the church and Paul says you're free in Christ and they're like all right now we're talking and they're ready to shed everything that that all these cultural things cuz they want to be free and they say we don't have to we don't have to submit anymore we don't have to obey anymore we don't have to respect anymore We are free to do whatever we want to do in Christ. And the first act of freedom is ripping off this submissive straitjacket that society has put upon us. And Paul says, yes, you're right. You are free in Christ. But it's not freedom to rebel. It's freedom to submit. And Paul is asking wives, children, slaves... People who have been forced to submit to now voluntarily choose to submit. Actually, he's asking for more than that. He's asking for more than submission. He's asking them to honor and to respect those that the culture says have power over them. Honor and respect are words that take us to a deeper place than just submission. You can submit out of obligation. You can submit even if you don't want to. But to honor and to respect someone is a choice. It's a decision you have to make. To honor and to respect another person is to look up to them, to use our words and our actions to make them feel valuable, to treat them as though they're the most important person on the earth. Imagine if today you went to your door whether of your house, or your dorm room, or your apartment, you went to your door and you opened it and standing there was your, your favorite sports personality or your favorite artist, that, that person that you would stand in line for hours in order to meet, right? You got that person in your mind, right? Now, if you opened the door and they were standing there, would you say to them, what do you want? Would you say, yeah, come on in, have a seat, I don't know, I got things to do, make yourself at home, whatever, of course not. You would be falling all over yourself, dragging them into your place. asking, them, can I get something to drink? Can I get you something to eat? You're hanging on every word because you honor them and you respect them. They're important to you. And Paul's saying, that's the kind of spirit with which people ought to submit. That's the kind of spirit in which we submit to people who have authority over us. And we do it willingly in the spirit of Christ. Jesus doesn't come to earth begrudgingly. Jesus doesn't go to the cross because he's obligated, because he can't get out of it, because people are, someone's forcing him to do it. He goes to the cross willingly and lovingly. And it's kind of a radical way to live toward people who have power over us. But I'll be honest with you, it's not near as radical as the other side that Paul addresses. As he also says, people who have cultural power willingly submit to those who are culturally vulnerable. To the people who have all the cultural power, Paul says, let it go. Instead of wielding power, give it away, selflessly, sacrificially. He says, husbands, love your wives like Christ loves the church. Give up yourself without any thought of whether you're going to get anything back or not. And however we might interpret the husband is to be the head over his wife, the the, the attitude and the underlying foundation of that instruction is husbands are related related to their wives by laying down their lives in order for their wives' life to flourish. However, we interpret it, headship cannot mean following our own selfish desires at our wife's expense. And even when we get into a deadlocked position, the real disagreement is who gets to submit? I mean, all Christians are called to this relationship. But Paul is using marriage as an example because this, is the way, this way of thinking about relationships in general is so foreign and so honestly repugnant to males in the Greco-Roman world. And it may not be all that different in our world. I mean, we like to do what we want to do. We like to be able to, to get our way. But Paul says the husband's purpose is to do everything in his power to make his wife feel special and valuable, to feel clean and pure, just as it's Christ's purpose with the church. And so he says in verse 31, for this this reason, for this purpose, that a man puts his wife first in his life, even at a higher place than his mother and father, who sort of represent all of those important relationships in his life. It's always intrigued me that the only piece of premarital advice that God gives to Adam and Eve is that a man will leave his father and mother and be united with his wife and the two will become one flesh. Now, how could Adam leave his father and mother? He didn't have one, right? But it tells you how important that command is to God. And you wonder, why does God give this command, give advice to the man and not the woman? Why would God give premarital counsel to a husband and not a wife because in these cultures, she has to leave. She doesn't have any choice about it. That's the way things are done. And so the onus for the relationship, the onus for a husband and wife being the central person in all of their human relationships is on the husband, not the wife. In the same way, he says, parents, don't exasperate your children Don't provoke them to anger. Don't threaten your children. Love them. Sacrifice yourself for them. Give up what you want so you can teach them the truths of God. it's imperative to remember that even when God disciplines us, the purpose of it is redemption, not retribution. It's about what's best for our child, not what might be easy for us. In a lot of cultures, children are actually considered kind of a nuisance, not a gift of God. Children are an inconvenience that take our time rather than a blessing in which we can invest ourselves. I think one of the ways we struggle with this in the church is believing that nurturing our spiritual life is far more important than nurturing our children's spiritual lives. And we focus our attention on us and we push them to the periphery. And somewhere in the back of our minds, we're saying, look, I've got my own spiritual needs. Somebody else is going to have to take care of that. In the back of our minds, we're thinking, well, it's great that Jesus wants the little children to come to him. But actually, I've got more important things to do. We know Jesus says the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. But we're actually, we're pretty sure the kingdom of God belongs to the people who have the power and the influence in this world. And that's where I'm going to focus my attention. And in the workplace, people with power, treat the people who work for them with respect. Don't play favorites. Don't treat them as though we're better than them, as though they have nothing to offer us. We treat people with great value. One of the ways you value people is to listen to them, listen to their opinions and their thoughts, just as Christ does the church. What if Christ treated, what if Christ listened to our prayers The way we listen to the words and the opinions and the thoughts of people who are culturally subordinate to us. What I find when I read through this passage is that the primary focus, the the hardest work, the most demanding thing that Paul is saying is on husbands and fathers and masters. I mean, society has already created a lot of atmosphere in which women, children, and slaves are forced to submit. Paul just wants them to do it from the right attitude. But husbands and fathers and masters have no cultural obligation to submit. In fact, the question the culture is asking is, why in the world would you want to do that? Well, you've got all the power. What would you, why would you want to sacrifice any of that? What's wrong with you? Every culture commands the first group to submit. Few cultures command the second group, except in the church, except God's people who are part of his kingdom. It's important to understand that Paul is talking about treating each other in a way that resembles the way Christ treats us. And if you're wondering, well, in these relationships, who takes the first step of submission? Who blinks first? It's not the most vulnerable upon whom Paul places responsibility. It's on the people with the power. Where submission is the most countercultural thing that a person could do in that situation. Because when Christ goes to the cross not in response to our submission, we submit in response to what he's already done in submitting for us. And that's why we come back to verse 21 as so key to all of this. All of us willingly submit to each other because we fear Christ. And so whether you're sitting here today and thinking, you know, a marriage relationship isn't a part of your life, or maybe that's not the parent-child thing, or maybe it's not a work thing, those closest relationships are still a part of submitting. And all of this is really not about us. It's about Christ. This is really a Christological passage. And our problem with this passage that often has been been very controversial in the church is that we're thinking of these relationships about who's the boss. Who gets to wield the power? And we think the answer is either husband or wife or parent or child or master or slave. And Paul says, no, you're all wrong. It's Jesus. Jesus is the one with the power. Jesus is the one whose presence infuses every element of life. And it intrigues me that Paul says that we submit to each other out of reverence for Christ. And the word translated reverence is phobos, the word we get phobia, means fear. And it is a sense of understanding who God is in comparison to us. And so Romans 3.18 says of pagans, there is no fear of God before their eyes. They have no concept of who God is as the Almighty One, as the ruler of all things, as the creator and the sustainer of everything. They have no concept of God like that. As so they do what they want. But we know. We know who God is. And because we know who God is and because we see His greatness and His power and we also see His mercy and His grace... We want to do what he's asking us to do. Jesus says those who exalt themselves will be humbled. Those who humble themselves will be exalted. If we aren't willing to respect and love in our closest relationships, then the problem isn't just in our relationships. There's something not right in our relationship with Christ. And that unwillingness to submit to each other spills over into the church and ultimately mars and hinders our witness to the world. In chapter 5, verse 18, Paul commands us to be filled with the Spirit. And now, in essence, he's saying that one of the essential marks of being filled with the Spirit is a willingness to submit to each other. Because relationships are always spiritual. Spiritual. They're always a reflection of the Spirit in us, especially those relationships with people that are closest to us. And we so often skew that because we're more concerned about power than about holiness. When our primary focus of life and relationship is being in Christ... And we don't worry so much about authority and power, about rights and privileges. We're far more concerned with discovering every way we possibly can of submitting to each other. Of loving and respecting and caring for each other. Until we understand that this call to mutual submission in all of our relationships is rooted in the grace of God, we're going to miss it. When we come to see that all of us are here only because of the grace of God, we all come equally to God and to the cross. None of us, are, no one is better than anyone else. We are all equals in the kingdom. And we begin to not worry so much about what we can get and begin thinking more and more about how we can give and love and respect and honor. And submit. I suspect that most of us grow up riding bikes. Maybe your bike looks something like this one. I remember we used to ride our bikes all over the neighborhood. and There's something about bikes that make you want to race. Isn't it? You know, we'd be sitting there on our bikes, all of a sudden somebody would say, "How race you to the end of the street. And you know, bam, we're all off. And we would race up and down the streets of our neighborhood. As you get older, they call that cycling. You know, grown-ups racing on grown-up bikes and things like the Tour de France where they race all over the place, 2,200 miles. Something about it that makes us want to go. I was thinking about that the other day as I remembered a story I read years ago about the most unusual race I've ever heard of. It's a race where people came together... ...and the object was not to see who could go the fastest or the furthest. The object of the race was to see who could stay as close to the finish, uh, starting line as possible. And so everybody queues up on the start line... ...and the gun goes off and everybody just sits there. If you tip over, you're disqualified. If your foot touches the ground, you're disqualified. And so everybody's sitting on the bike just inching forward as little as possible and and still keeping their balance. And When the gun goes off at the end of the time limit, the person who is the furthest away from the starting line is the loser. The person who's still closest to the line is the winner. Now, what if you walked into that race having no idea about what the rules were? And you go up to the line and you're saying, oh, this is going to be fun. And the gun goes off and you take off like a shot. And your legs are pumping and your heart is beating. and You're sweating. And you look back and you are leaving those guys in the dust. And you're thinking, this is awesome. This is so easy. These guys have nothing. And the gun goes off a little bit later and, and they yelling races over. And you're thinking, yeah, I won. This is great. And then they tell you, ...the rules of the race... ...and you realize... ...you don't win at all... ...you came in last... ...you lost... ...now what if that was reversed? What if you know the rules perfectly? You understand exactly how the race... ...is supposed to be run... ...and you get on your bike... ...and you're on the start line... ...and the gun goes off... ...and you sit there... ...and you're just inching forward... But everybody else takes off. Everybody else is making their way around the track, and they're all looking back at you, and they're laughing, and they're joking, and they're pointing at you, and saying, What is wrong with them? Why are they sitting there? Don't they know how to race? Can you stay at the line and not give in to what everybody else is doing? God is calling us in our relationships to do what everybody else says is crazy. To do what everybody else says doesn't make any sense. To stay at the line because we believe that the rules of God are right. That the way to receive the fullness of God the way to have the kinds of relationships that we have always dreamed, the way to let God work in us is not to grab, but to let go. Not to think about power, but to think about submission. Can we trust God and believe God enough that despite what everybody else is doing and despite what everybody else says to us, that's the right way. That's the way of Christ and the way of the cross and the way to the fullness, experiencing the fullness of God in our lives, in our church, in our closest relationships. Holy Father, you know this is a hard word for us. We are so tuned to grabbing and getting and thinking about power. Give us new eyes. Give us new ways of thinking and seeing. Make us people who are known by our willingness to submit in those closest relationships. Help us to trust you. And we pray this through the grace of Christ. Amen.